Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament letter of 1 John. Again, if you're new to Holy Scripture, you'll find it in the very back of your Bible, just after 2 Peter, just before Jude and Revelation. Today we move into chapter 5, final chapter of this first letter. Today we'll study verse 1. As I was preparing and praying through this next portion of the text, I was really blessed at the depth of the life-changing doctrine that is highlighted here in verse 1. And so today we will spend time just in verse 1, a sermon that I've titled, Born of God. Look with me at our passage, and we'll jump right in. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I want to help us see why John is driving home the fact that belief in Jesus Christ is so essential. Let me first highlight that this is something that John has been driving home again and again in his letter. It's something that leaders, teachers do to help those who are listening, those who are reading, to have good, right understanding. And so even as we return to these truths, it is good for us. It is good to solidify in us. So there will be things this morning, church, that we will cover that we've covered before. Things that I pray you know well. And there are things that help us in our testimony, help us in our walking with others. To break through casual Christianity that is a plague to so many. Uh, To have good, solid, biblical doctrine and understanding. And that the Lord would use it mightily in our own lives and in the lives of those he puts around us. John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another just as he has commanded us. Essentially what he says right here in our verse today. It is also John's revealed main reason for writing his gospel. The gospel of John The purpose of writing that gospel is revealed in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Church, belief in Jesus is so absolutely essential. It is important that we understand that the command of God on all of creation is to believe in Him, to trust Him, to honor Him. Why? Because it is what God is due in and from creation. It is the right response of all of the creation towards the Creator. Think about that. There is nothing more right in all of life than to give God what God is due. Respect, honor, faith, obedience. In this you could confidently proclaim that believing into God, or said differently, trusting your entire life to God, is the highest purpose of one's life. Think of all the things that we often say are the most important thing. In life, the things that drive why we do our day the way we do it, why we live the season, the year, the way we do. All those things that we can make our greatest priority in our days, but nothing in all of our life is as important as trusting God, obeying God. Believing God in faith. The Holy Scriptures say that this is such a priority for the moment-by-moment life of mankind 
that anything we do, think, or say outside of faith in God is sin. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't miss the overwhelming reality of this. If faith in God is not the origin, the motivation of our activity, it is sin. The reason this is so penetrating is that it goes to the root of all sinful actions and attitudes. Namely, a fundamental failure to trust God. The original language gives emphasis to this even more than the English version. It says, everything which is not from faith is sin. Everything, anything, any act or attitude which is not from true faith unto the glory of God is sin. No matter how good or right or moral it may appear to man. God looks beyond the action to the heart to the motivation or the aim of the action or the thought. And and so let's stop playing shell games. Let's stop playing on just the horizontal where we're thinking, I just got to get through this conversation with this person. I just got to tell them what they want to hear. No. Don't lie. Don't manipulate. Don't short-sight it. Do what is honoring to the Lord. That's why you do it. All pervasive fault in every sin at its core is unbelief. By unbelief, I do not mean a mere refusal to accept the truths of the Bible. This is because one is not saved from their sin by simply giving mental assent to the promises of God. We are saved by whether we hope with our hearts and trust our lives to those promises and truths. It is our failure of our heart to be confident in the promises of God. Right? That's our faith at work. When the circumstances are crazy, our faith stands fast in His promises. We find pleasure in the provision He has guaranteed for an eternity with Him. And when we don't do that, that is the essence of sin. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it is impossible to please God. Consider the synopsis of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So listen to the important clarity this gives us. We are saved by grace and through faith. We are saved because of God's grace. That's why we're saved. Because of God. Because of His grace. Not because we were deserving. Not because He was obligated. But only because by His grace He willed to save us. If you are saved, if you are a true believer in Jesus, then why are you a Christian? Because of God's amazing gift of grace. How are you a Christian? Through faith in Christ alone. Because of your faith in another. Specifically, faith in Jesus Christ. And in no other can one be saved. The why we are saved is not our doing. It's God's grace. 
The how we are saved is not our doing. Scripture tells us that grace is a gift and faith is a gift. So, so that it is all praise to God and none to me. He is mighty to save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is worthy to be praised. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The grace and the faith. If faith is the vehicle we climb into to be saved, if faith or belief is essential for making all progress in maturity, in life, in worship to God, to do all things by faith, then we need to have a good, solid understanding of what faith is. The Word of Truth Catechism, question 86. What must we do to be saved? We are enabled by the power and will of God we joyfully, willingly turn from sin, trust in Jesus alone. This is saving faith. As one of the elders, I speak on behalf of the elders, in a desire to want to shepherd you well, to equip the saints, to teach you God's truth, that you know it well. You don't kind of know it. You know it well. You know it rightly. We want you to have a solid understanding and articulation of what is saving faith. We can't talk about it enough, church. You need to be constantly fine-tuning your discernment of it. So, to help solidify this this morning, I want to circle back to a three-part understanding that Bible scholars have used for centuries, and we have tried to instill in you here at Disciples Church. How well do you really know these things. We want you to know them really well. Because all three are so essential to saving faith. Those three are knowledge, belief, and trust. They are the three legs of the stool of saving faith. You don't have one of those, you don't have saving faith. And yet so many people claim to have saving faith and are grossly missing one of them. And it will not stand. So let's look at these this morning. And I really want you to know these so well that it's not only instrumental in your own saving faith, but for your articulation of what is true saving faith to those that God has put in your life. Parents, this is important for you as you walk with your children as you try to discern where, how is God at work in them and where are they at? Children, family, friends who are contemplating, do you have true saving faith? Do you belong to the Lord? You need to do business with all three of these very keenly. And where the questions arise, then, then there we go to work. According to Scripture. Do you have, do your children have, do your friends and family have all three legs? If not, faith is not at work. Without all three, the stool does not stand. The first leg of the three-legged stool of saving faith is knowledge. You have to know about the object of your faith. R.C. Sproul said it very simply, very well. Faith without content is no true faith at all. Before I believe in, I must believe that. This is why Scripture says in Romans 10.14, How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? Romans 10.17, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. There has to be biblical knowledge Biblical gospel testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done. We must hear it. We must take it into our minds and hearts. The truth about the gospel of Jesus before we can believe in it. So I just ask you, do you have biblical knowledge? You must. You cannot just believe what you want to about Jesus. You cannot believe some, something someone else has taught you that is not true. 
That is false. You must have true biblical knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done. So if someone says, I'm a Mormon, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Jehovah's Witness, I believe in Jesus. If they're, if they're professing the Jesus that the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness church teaches, they don't have saving faith. Why? Because they believe in a false Christ. They must know the true Christ according to Scripture. I don't care how nice these people are. They believe in a false God. For many of you, this is a part of where you're currently working or need to continue to really lean in and work. Young ones, children, teenagers, I'm speaking a lot to you as well. You are coming to hear faithful teaching of God's Word, what it actually says. If this is what you're doing in this stage of your life, it is the best thing you're doing to rightly understand God's Word. Keep learning God's Word. Keep reading God's Word. Keep hearing it taught rightly. Because you can't believe in what you don't rightly understand. So the first leg of saving faith is knowledge. You have to know about the object of your faith. The second leg is belief. You have to believe what you have come to now know as true. Hear what I'm saying very carefully. You can know a lot about God and not know God. You can know a lot. Someone who says, I've read, I know a lot of scripture. I've been in church a lot of years. You can know a lot about God and not know God. You can study the Bible, go to church every week and not have saving faith. Why? Because you must believe in your soul in what is true about God. Jesus speaks about this directly, talking about the Pharisees. Teachers of the law, very educated, very studied people, Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So this is very true still today. There are many kinds of people who have knowledge of what a Christian is, of who Jesus is, what the Bible teaches us about Jesus, but they don't believe the gospel. We must believe it. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Listen to how the late great Reformed pastor theologian John Calvin spoke of this. He says, and I quote, It now remains to pour into the heart itself what the mind has absorbed. For the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depths of the heart, that it may be an invincible defense to withstand and drive off all the stratagems of temptation. And so for many of you, young ones, this is your journey. You're learning the truths of God but we're waiting on the sovereign work of God to give you new birth. We're going to get into that in a little bit. So that what you know moves to the heart and you believe it. First leg of saving faith is knowledge. You have to know about the object of your faith. The second, you must believe in what you have come to know is true. The third, you must trust you must truly and fully surrender yourself to the one you now believe in. James Montgomery Boyce says that, well, real yielding of oneself to Christ goes beyond knowledge, however full and accurate that knowledge may be, and even beyond agreeing with or being personally moved by the gospel. The belief. It's it's got to have the third leg. It can't just be knowledge. It can't just be belief. There's an element to that belief that is trust. Belief is needed, but it's not enough if it's not trusting oneself to the one in whom you believe. You can know about God in your head, believe what you know in your heart, but still not have saving faith. This is what James is emphasizing in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
The demons knew a lot about God, believed what they knew about Him, so much so that they shuddered at His presence. That Jesus is the one true God. But they did not have saving faith. They did not trust themselves to Him. And I can't tell you how many well-intending people I've heard say over the years, they think their loved one is in heaven, not because they witnessed true faith, that is faith with all three essential legs, but only because they simply claimed to believe that Jesus was God. The demons claimed and professed that Jesus was God. We must trust ourselves to Jesus. We mu- he must be our Savior and our Lord. Trust is committing our lives to Jesus. It's passing over the line of belonging to ourselves to belong to Him. I now do not what I want to do, not what my flesh wants to do. I do what He wants me to do. I belong to Him. I've trusted my life to Him. It's dying to ourselves to live to Christ. It is true conversion Conversion is the Holy Spirit-empowered response to the gospel call by which a person willingly and sincerely repents of sin and places his or her complete trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. The word conversion itself means turning. It represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin, turning to Christ. The turn from sin is called repentance, The turning to Christ is called faith. So this is where a careful reading of the famous John 3.16 is so helpful. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John uses a surprising phrase when he does not simply say, whoever believes Him. It doesn't say that. Belief without trust is not enough. He says, whoever believes in him. Greek word there, S, into. Whoever believes into him. There's the trust. The belief has action. Dying to self, giving of myself to Christ. One is believing about. One is just believing something to be true. The other is banking your whole life on it. Our belief must include true and total trust. Trusting Jesus, putting all of your life on Him. If Christ is not enough, then you're done. Because you've put it all on Jesus. But if He is enough, then you're saved forever. Praise God. True trust in Jesus means you have no parachute backup. You don't put most of all of your money on red and then a little bit on number four. Just as a backup. No, it's all on Jesus. And so if it doesn't hit Jesus, if it's not Jesus, you're done. You're bankrupt. But if it's Him, you win the prize of all prizes. Amen? Praise God. We don't add a little faith in Jesus so we can be covered. We, don't tr- also, we also don't trust in something else. It's not Jesus plus something else. No, Scripture says we die to ourselves to completely trust in Jesus alone. My life, my eternity is Jesus or nothing. In this, we see that a believer in Jesus is not someone who just proclaims faith in Jesus or someone who says they trusted Jesus at one time. A true believer is one who lives their life trusting Jesus, believing into Him. If your life is marked by a repetition of stated proclamations of belief about Jesus, but at the end of the day, you still live your life trusting yourself, you are still on the throne then of your life, you are therefore still dead in your sin. It is only when our stated proclamation of belief that Jesus is Savior and Lord is backed by a life 
that submits to Jesus as Lord and to trust God's will and obey God's word. In this we have confidence that our faith is truly saving and not just superficial. So true saving faith must have all three legs. Do you know them? You need to. You need to know them well. They are knowledge that you have to know about the object of your faith. Right biblical knowledge. Number two, belief. To believe in what you now know to be true. Number three, trust. To completely surrender yourself to the one in whom you now believe. And can I just say quickly, we're all believing something. And we're all trusting something. Conviction and belief is something that in and of itself, though, is not enough. It must be faith. We've just described faith in three ways. The three essential legs of faith. It must be faith in Jesus alone to have salvation. And this is John's emphasis in our verse. Now go back with me and see all of that underneath what is said here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. All of that is wrapped up in what he just said there. But it must be in Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah who lived without sin, died to fully pay for our deserved wrath, do our sin, rose victoriously to reign with God forever, just as we one day will. We who believe in Him have faith in Him. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says, the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. It is belief that He is the promised Christ, that He alone saves our soul, is the fundamental reality of every true believer. Anyone who does not have faith in Jesus alone is not saved. Anyone who believes in a different Jesus, a different Messiah altogether is not saved. It is my deep prayer that it is God's will to give every person here saving faith in Jesus. Why? Because there is nothing better in all of life or eternity than to be reconciled to the one true God. Amen? Because we are guilty in our sin and damned to hell under God's righteous wrath if we do not trust in the only one who can save us. Now notice how I said what I just said. It is my deep prayer that it is God's will to give every person here saving faith. Why didn't I just say it is my deep prayer that every person just believes in Jesus for salvation? Because saving faith Because true belief and trust into Jesus is the work of God alone. It is the gift of God. If we are to be saved, we must be born again by God. This is John's emphasis in our verse. Hear it again. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. You will not believe that Jesus is the Christ. You will not have saving faith if God does not give you new birth. If we are to be saved, we must be born again by God. This is John's emphasis. Parents, I pray you're tracking with me this morning. Moms, I've loved you well not to preach on motherhood this morning. I loved you well to preach the gospel with clarity that your children might hear this and have God's appointed seeds planted, God's appointed time in their life, maybe even in you, maybe even in your husband, maybe even in your family. This is the deepest prayer of a mother who belongs to Jesus. Amen? Consider the next layer of John's emphasis here in verse 1. John elevates a wonderful doctrine that we must all know Rightly, but not only know it rightly, but rejoice in it. If, if you're the Christian who's hearing this today, you say, Pastor, I know this stuff. 
If you do, you should not be discontent with that. If you do, you should be welling up with worship. And therefore, it's a great Sunday. John elevates this wonderful doctrine that we rejoice in what is new birth, spiritual birth, being born of God. This is a, this wondrous part of our story if we, if we know Jesus. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. So you're going back to the front of the New Testament, the fourth Gospel, John, chapter 2, the very end of the chapter, and then we're going to move into 3. I want to consider Jesus' likely most famous teaching about new birth. Again, we, your Disciple Church elders, want you to have a solid understanding of the doctrine of saving faith and of new birth. It's a huge part of our worship to God, of our right gospel testimony to others. Lean in with me and be sure you understand the necessity of God's work to give His chosen people new birth. John chapter 2, 23-25, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What we discover here is a sobering reality, that there is a kind of belief that looks like saving faith, that makes one look like a follower of Jesus, but in the end, it is not saving faith. It does not save. How do we know this? Because Jesus does not entrust himself to them. Instead, they remain in their sin. So there is a kind of belief about Jesus that is superficial. It's not saving. Earlier in John chapter 2, we see some people see the glory of Jesus in his signs, and believe like the disciples did in John 2.11. But there's also others who see the same signs, but they don't believe like the Jewish leaders did in John 2.18. See the same evidence, maybe hear the same gospel profession. Some, the Lord gives new birth unto belief, others not. But there's a third group, people who say they believe, but their belief is superficial, not saving, Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows their heart and not just their confession of their words or their outward actions. What John is pointing out here is a very serious and often overlooked, but it is so critical. We must do business with the text because superficial faith equals eternal death. This means you can look like you believe, you can do the right things, you can say the right words, but in the end, if you do not truly trust Jesus with your entire life, with saving faith, you are dead in sin. This is not just a problem in Jesus' day, it continues to be one today. I can't tell you how many people I've ministered to over the years who believe they were saved because they repeated words that someone else told them to say, only to find out later in life what true saving repentance and faith was. Praise God for many of those. He did save them. The Bible says salvation is only found in the hearts of men and women who, whom God has awakened from death to life with the gift of faith in Christ alone. Back to John 2.23. These people are saying they believe in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Therefore, Declaring their belief is superficial, not saving. Why does he not entrust himself to them? Because he knows what's in them. He knew their words of belief were just words. He knew the actual state of their heart. Their heart had no spiritual life. It was dead. Look with me again. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. A consequence of the fall of the first, Adam, of the first man, Adam, every person born into the world is morally corrupt and spiritually dead. It doesn't matter how sweet they look in their baby photos. Morally dead. This doctrine is called total depravity. A concise way to think about total depravity is the state of being spiritually dead, 
They're physically alive and spiritually dead. It's not just that some parts are sinful and other parts are pure. Rather, every part of the being is affected by sin. Intellect, emotions, desires, our heart, our decision-making processes, our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, All unregenerate people are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. God will not have, the holy God will not have fellowship with unregenerate people because he knows what is in man's heart. The sin is at work that actively separates them from the holy God. There is no forgiveness. There is no justification for that sin. No atonement for it. Hear it again. John 2, 24-25. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus will not entrust himself to anyone simply because they proclaim superficial faith in him. This is why we don't do altar calls here. Because we don't need to say something or emotionally get you twisted just in the right way where you're convinced today's the day I just got to say the words. But that's not really the state of your heart. If God gives you true saving faith, if He gives you new birth, you will repent and believe in Jesus. I don't need to get you to do something to do that. That will be your testimony. And so we want, that's why we say, if God's moving, then tell us. We want to walk with you. We want to confirm. What is it you think you believe? Is it in a right belief, a biblical belief? What does it mean that you believe in Him? What does it mean that you trust in Him? If that gospel testimony is correct, then praise God, you're saved. doesn't matter how young you are in, in understanding it. If that's there, then you're saved. Praise God. Jesus will not entrust Himself to anyone who simply proclaims superficial faith in Him. Therefore, every one of us is desperate for new birth, the work of God to give us spiritual life. A.W. Pink, late historian, uh, theologian, says it well. The new birth is an imperative necessity because the natural man is altogether devoid of spiritual life. It is not that he is ignorant and needs instruction. It is not that he is feeble and needs invigorating. It is not that he is sickly and needs doctoring. His case is far worse. He is dead in trespasses and sins. There is no poetical figure of speech. It is a solemn reality, little as it is perceived by the majority of people. The sinner is spiritually lifeless and needs quickening. He is a spiritual corpse and needs bringing from the dead unto life. He is a member of the old creation, which is under the curse of God. And unless he has made a new creation in Christ, he will lie under the curse to all eternity. What the natural man needs above everything else is life, divine life. As a birth is the gateway to life, he must be born again. And except he be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is final. Unquote. Our dead and sin souls need to be born anew. What is spiritually what what spiritually dead what is spiritually dead must be made spiritually alive this is the work of God alone without the spirit's reviving work in a person they are unable to know God unable to seek God unable to please God so so there is no seekers in the church who come to church we don't do seeker sensitive things there's no seeking. We preach the gospel. We preach the word of God faithful. We call people to repentance and belief. And if God gives them new birth, they repent and believe. The Apostle Paul makes this so clear. Romans 8, 7-8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus also teaches it's impossible for man to turn to God without God's gracious intervention of giving them new birth. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Many people, myself included, were taught growing up that man is free enough to choose God. This is not the teaching of Holy Scripture. We are not free enough to choose God and believe in the gospel. As we have just seen, Scripture teaches again and again, man's will is not free as many commonly think of free will. Instead, we are the opposite of free in our natural self. We are enslaved to sin. One who is enslaved is not free. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Man cannot please God or choose Jesus in our sin. This is so big. We have to hear the global and ongoing revelation of God's word in this matter. When we think we can just believe any time we want to, is to endorse an economy of superficial faith. If you can hear my voice, you must understand the threat of superficial belief is very real. You must see today what you are desperate for is new birth. Parents, what we're praying for is not for our kids to figure it out. It's for new birth. And that belongs to the Lord. And you don't sit there and reason with God to say, well, I've been doing all these things, so isn't it time? No, that doesn't belong to you. We are His. We do what He calls us to do. Train them up in the truths of the Lord. Discipline them. Love them well. Call them to repentance and belief. And trust the Lord. And Scripture says, I can't get into this this morning, if they don't believe, God will be glorified forever in their life. And if they do believe, God will be glorified forever in their life. And what do we live for as Christians? Not the salvation of our children. We live for the glory of God. How do I rest in the fact that I don't know in my kids who have not professed faith yet if they will ever? How do I rest? I rest in the fact that no matter which God has chosen for them, He will be glorified. The purpose of my life is that He would be glorified. The purpose of their lives, saved or damned, is that He would be glorified. His power is revealed in both His grace. We live for the glory of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. To understand this, we have to turn then to the next chapter. Look, look at chapter 3. John 3, 1-2. They need new birth. Regeneration. So here comes a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus is going to answer Nicodemus by addressing the true state of Nicodemus's heart. He's essentially going to say that it is not enough that you believe that I'm from God. He's going to call out his superficial belief and declare what is necessary to have saving faith. He's going to say, you don't understand the true workings of the kingdom because you cannot yet see them because you have not yet been spiritually born. Look with me at verse 3, John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whenever you hear Jesus say truly, truly twice, it's a way to imply great emphasis. So when Nicodemus says, we know, in verse 2, Jesus is saying in his reply, no, you don't know. And here's how much you don't know. Truly, truly. Jesus is saying, no amount of human knowledge, reasoning, or believing will bring you to spiritual understanding. You first need new birth. What is dead must be made alive. Later in the New Testament, other imagery is used to describe the need for birth. 
The deaf cannot hear. The spiritually deaf cannot spiritually hear. The spiritually blind cannot spiritually see. The dead cannot believe. The spiritually dead cannot believe with saving faith because they're not spiritually yet made alive. Because new birth is required. The heart of stone must be replaced with the heart of flesh. And so this is the shocking words Jesus has for Nicodemus. And it's shocking because all the faithful Jews believed that they were going to be in God's future kingdom. And Jesus says, unless one is born again. The the word born again there literally means born from above. Born top to bottom. Unless one is born from above. John uses this same phrase in our verse today. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Born from above. Now Nicodemus reveals in his response that what he thinks Jesus is saying is that he literally has to be born again from the womb. Physical womb. Look, John 3, 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So here Nicodemus reveals Jesus' very point. All Nicodemus can see or think of is the physical because he has no discernment for what Jesus is referring to that is spiritual birth. It is actually quite shocking that this is his reply. Maybe if Jesus was talking to a five-year-old, we may go, okay. Right? Five-year-old's trying to understand. Right? Everyone knows a grown man's not going to crawl up into his mother's womb and come out again. All you mothers out there, if you thought the first round was painful. (laughs) Wow. Moms, can I just say on behalf of all your kids, thank you for what you went through to carry us for nine months and then the pain, the incredible pain of birthing a human being. Thank you. Thank you for all you did. Thank you for all you've done. Church, we must understand physical birth is different than spiritual birth. When we're talking about new birth, we're talking about spiritual birth. So look with me at Jesus' answer to his outlandish question. John 3, 5 through 6. Jesus answered, truly, truly. Again, you really don't get it. So let me double down. I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus' reply brings clarity that even if one could literally physically be born again, that wouldn't accomplish anything that they really need, other than just having a new stab at physical life. Most people, probably including yourself, have seriously contemplated, what would my life be like if I could go back and do it again? I know that's a big thought for many of you moms on this day. What if I could hit the reset button and do it all again? But what you have to see is that while you might do many things differently, you would be just as spiritually dead. Therefore, physical rebirth is not worth anything in the long run. It's just another stab to fail at it all over again. Instead, what is absolutely needed is spiritual birth. Born of flesh refers to natural physical birth. Born of spirit is Jesus' reference to what is necessary for eternal life and reconciliation with God. So what is new birth? What does it mean to be born from above, to be given eyes to see and ears to hear? We call it regeneration. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Right? So that therefore your kid, your loved one, doesn't just walk out of the room all of a sudden. You're like, you were born again. We don't, we don't see it that way. It's, it's a secret act of God that requires testimony and, and a consistency in testimony. It's called new birth or being born again. We see this, for example, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel when he talks about those to whom Christ gave power to become children of God. They were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. John 1.13. John specifies the children of God are those who are born of God. Same phrase John uses in our verse. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The critical thing we have to understand is that our human will, the will of man, does not bring about this kind of new birth. The work of regeneration, the work of new birth, we play actively no role. New birth is totally a work of God. One of my favorites, you guys who've been with me a while know I love this verse well, 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We did not choose to be made physically alive we did not choose to be born, right? I don't got to convince anyone of that. You didn't like show up, hey, time for me to be born. It is something that happened to us. Scripture tells us that we are entirely passive also in our new birth, regeneration. It is the work of another. From our spiritually dead state, we don't choose God. No, He chooses to make us spiritually alive. And only then do we say yes to Jesus as Lord. New birth is essential for true saving belief because the heart must be made alive if it's going to trust in God. It must be freed from its enslaved state in sin before we see the full state of our sin, repent of it, see the beauty of the gospel, and say yes to Jesus in every way. This is good news to us, church, because it's the only lasting and true new beginning. Many of you want a new beginning in this life. You want a fresh start. You want to see real change in areas of your life. New birth is the true and only way to experience this. All other man-made restarts will inevitably fall into the abyss in the end. Only new birth given by God is lasting and truly brings about a new nature in you. The new birth is the impartation of a new nature. When I was born the first time, I received from my parents the sin nature. When I was born again, I received from God the Holy Spirit to dwell in me and fight the flesh unto a desire for God, a will to work out that salvation, to grow in sanctification. So Paul says, well, in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is so important because if you are spiritually dead, what do you have? Jesus said it well, Mark 8.36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? You can have it all and have nothing. What we need is only possible in God alone. And why does all this really matter? Because again, nothing matters more. I pray this makes you hungry to study God's word, hear the testimony of the gospel, that it might be God's good will to save you and set you free to truly live, to live with God forever. That God, only Him, causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead, to, the dead in sin to rise in new life in Christ. Jesus said it, John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Praise God that he has caused many of us to be born again and will cause many more until he comes again. Amen? Do business with us today. If you're still here, meaning you, you're still physically alive, you're not dead and timed out yet, then there is hope that God can still give you a new birth. Give you saving faith. It doesn't matter how long you have done it your own way. All that matters is if and when God decides to give you new birth. I'm saying this to you kids, teenagers, beloved family who's visiting today, many of you who have participated in church, even our church, for a long time. There is nothing more important this. You must be born again if you are to trust in Jesus. 
So keep leaning in, keep asking questions, keep hearing the word of God faithfully preached. Church, this also means we need to keep praying for our loved ones, keep witnessing to them, for we do not know if and when God might give them new birth in Christ. Don't lose hope, Christian. Walk by faith in God, for He will do His perfect will. Amen? See this last part of verse 1 as it sets the table for our time next week and 2 and beyond. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So Christian, let me ask you, you who have been born again, you who have the three legs of saving faith, do you love God and therefore love those who have been born of Him? This is another evidence that we indeed have been born of Him. This is essentially John's reference to the great commandment. Matthew 22, 37-39, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. First and foremost, we are to love God more than anything or anyone else. I think we say this as Christians, but do we really mean it? Is God first in your life? Is He your first love? Is He your greatest love? Because if He truly is, you will forsake everything else to love Him. Meaning, if you were left with only one thing, all your family, all your money, all your health, your status, your friends, all of it would come after Him. This also means if you were to tragically lose one of those things, you aren't undone. You still have the great and deep love and relationship with the Lord. God must be first. And if He is, then we will love others rightly. This is all the work we've been doing in these past verses that John has done so well. He's saying if you truly love God, then you will love others, especially the church, those who have been born of God. This is the evidence that God's love is at work in you. It is evidence that you indeed have been born again. And so I ask you this morning, church, what are you doing with this amazing truth? We must have a right understanding of what saving faith is. See the essential work of God to give new birth. And for those whom He's graciously saved, we must love God and love others. For His love is at work now in us, and that is the evidence that we are indeed born again. I pray you be bold in your testimony, relentless in your worship to God. Thank God for your grace. Thank God for your eternal love, for your sovereign work and will to save many to give us new birth, saving faith in Jesus our Savior and Lord. May we stop thinking salvation happens a different way than Scripture makes clear. May we testify of the glory of God in His work in these ways. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, You are good, worthy to be praised, worthy to be trusted, and obeyed. Our enslavement to sin outside of Christ is so absolutely damning. It has all of us. We don't figure this out in that state. We must be made alive. Given spiritual discernment, view of the depth of our sin, the beauty of the gospel, In your sovereign ways, you give gospel proclamation through the faithful teaching and witness of your word. That we have a right understanding. You give then in that new life a belief in the one in whom we rightly understand. And fully then a trust in him all the way. All the way and in every way we trust our lives to Jesus. This is saving faith. Not something else we've said it is or thought it is or made it to be. Only what you have made clear it is. Praise you, Lord, for your grace, for your work, 
to give us saving faith. Be glorified in us. 1 Corinthians 15, 10-11 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What a gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Lord of glory, be glorified in us as we sing, as we live this day for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.